I said last night that in order to mobilize a church or a denomination or city or a movement in missions, you need to talk about other things bigger and greater than missions. And among those other things, I am including this week worship and prayer and suffering. And now tonight, I say the same thing about prayer. If you want to mobilize people for prayer, if you want to inspire people to pray, if you want to become radical in prayer with people, then you have to talk about something greater than prayer also. And the two things that I want to talk about that undergird prayer are life as war and God as sovereign. So pursuing peoples through prayer when life is war and God is sovereign is our theme for tonight. And then as a third heading after life is war and God is sovereign comes the awesome place of prayer in a worldview with God as sovereign and life as war. So let's pray that God would help us now. Father, my heart's desire is to become more devoted to world-changing, kingdom-advancing, God-exalting, mission-mobilizing, Satan-defeating, church-establishing, righteousness-upholding prayer. I don't like the level of my prayer. I doubt that anybody in this room is satisfied with his or her life of prayer. And so my heart's desire and my prayer to you is that we would come to the end of the next few minutes aflame with a passion to pray missions and the glory of God forward in the city and in the southeast and in our churches and in our denominations and in the world and especially among the peoples of the world who do not have any access to the gospel in their own culture. Lord, create praying people tonight. Teach us what it is to pray, I ask. And give us a heart to pray. And put us on our knees and our faces before you in prayer. Through Christ, in whose name we always pray, I pray. Amen. Just a word about what I mean by life is war and God is sovereign. and Um... We have to talk first about life being war. Um, it's utterly impossible for people to get a handle on what prayer is for until they know that life is war. So maybe that'll help you remember it. You cannot know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. The stakes are infinitely higher than any nuclear disaster of what's happening in the world today. The stakes that are 
in play today in this city and among the unreached peoples of the world are far worse than anything in World War II. Far worse. And the reason we have to talk about God being sovereign is because we wouldn't have any confidence that he would win the war if he weren't. If God doesn't rule and we weren't absolutely confident that he could triumph over all his foes, including all his human foes and his supernatural foes, then our prayers would be weak and without confidence. And then comes the place of prayer. So, number one, life is war. We give you some textual foundations for what I mean in the Bible. Second Timothy 4, 7, Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So he's at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. His life has been a fight. Life is fight. Nobody makes it to the end of their lives as a Christian without a fight. Because you are surrounded by so many enemies inside and outside of your soul that don't want you to finish well. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, He who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance is the name of the game in the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 9.26, Paul said, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul saw his whole ministry as pommeling his body beating it down when it would tend to rise up in rebellion against the kind of stresses that he had to live under in order to be a missionary for God. He kept saying no to his body. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus, he said. I die daily, Jesus said. I mean, Paul said to the Galatians. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war, for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. His whole ministry, his whole life was conceived in terms of a war. Tremendous obstacles and tremendous enemies and tremendous strong towers of opposition were in his way. And the only way he would make any headway in the world, in ministry and in the Christian life, is to be a successful warrior. Called Timothy his fellow soldier. One more text. This is perhaps the most familiar New Testament text on spiritual war Namely, Ephesians 6.12, we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God. And so you are to clothe yourselves with the armor of God and every day wear a helmet and a breastplate and a big belt and 
fitting shoes and to have a shield and to have a sword. And that's life. It's life. And yet almost nobody lives that way today. Which is why we make such a little impact in our country and why we are not finished with the Great Commission. Almost nobody lives as if life is war. Almost all of you live as if it's peacetime. In peacetime, this life goes on. You're concerned about your own comforts and your securities. In wartime, everything changes. Some of you are old enough to live through World War II. Everything changes for everybody. In wartime, newspapers carry the headlines about how the troops are doing on the front lines. In wartime, families talk about the family members that aren't there and may never be there again. In wartime, we are armed and we are vigilant and we are watchful. In wartime, we don't spend our money the way we used to spend our money during peacetime. In wartime, there's austerity. There are strategic ways of using everything. Everybody's cutting back. In wartime, it touches everybody. In wartime, luxury liners become troop carriers. Nobody lives like it's wartime in America. Almost nobody. There's a... A boat, I think it's down in San Diego, uh, the old Queen Mary that was once a luxury liner and, and then it was co-opted in World War II and became a troop carrier. And parts of it are divided up so that you can see the way it was designed when it was a luxury liner with the ten-piece settings of silverware and one nice berth to each room and then across the hall the way it was set with tin pans and bunks ten high in the rooms and how it carried 10,000 soldiers instead of a 1,000 uh, people on luxury vacations. That's the way things change in wartime. Very few people think we're in war today, but we are in a war vastly more serious than World War II, vastly more Horrible things are happening today in the warfare we're in. Satan is a much worse enemy than ever Hitler or Mussolini or anybody else ever was. The conflict isn't restricted to the theater of Europe or America or anywhere else. It's global. Every town, every city Every neighborhood and the casualties don't just lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life. They lose everything and they lose it forever in hell. And until people believe that life is war and that the stakes are higher and everything is more urgent, then we will go on living as though things were peaceful And life will not be seen as war, and we won't pray. You don't pray like it's wartime. Hardly any of you do. 
If it were wartime and your kid were on the front lines and every day they posted about 80,000 casualties, you'd pray. But your kids, are, they're in no danger. You're not in any danger as far as you can imagine. And so you don't pray. Here's the connection between prayer and wartime. Let me just read those verses toward the end of Ephesians 6 again. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying on every occasion in the Spirit, keeping awake with all perseverance. You get the connection? Let's read it again. Take the helmet. Take the sword, which is the word of God, praying on every occasion in the spirit, keeping awake with all perseverance, as though there are enemies to keep you from praying everywhere. To pray is a fight. To pray is a fight. Could you stay awake with me one hour? Jesus looks on them, one of the last pitiful things he ever said. Couldn't you watch with me one hour? Our spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. But do you even try? No, because it's not wartime. Life is easy. Life is comfortable. Life is rosy. We're padded on every side with comforts and securities. What's to pray? There's another connection between mission and prayer. John 15, 16 and 17. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, here comes one of the most stunning, logical connections to prayer that I've ever seen in the New Testament. Let's start over so you watch for this now. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Now, here's the purpose that I have appointed you and sent you to bear fruit. Here's the purpose, he says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, it may be given you. That's odd logic, isn't it? I chose you. I sent you. Go bear fruit for me. In order that your prayers might be answered. Hmm. What's that? What is that? You and I read that. Years ago, trying to put those pieces together, I realized my whole concept of prayer needed an adjustment. Prayer is for war. He gives us a role in the warfare. He puts us on the front lines to defeat the enemies and to win back Prisoners from the enemy so that we will have something to pray about. That's what it says. I'll read it again. You didn't choose me. 
I chose you. I recruited you. I send you to go and bear fruit so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, it will be done for you. The Father will answer your prayers when you're obedient to my commission. You know, I never tire of thinking and often say to our people back home, the main reason prayer malfunctions in the mouth of God's people is because they are AWOL and they are trying to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. To call up the butler for another pillow. Instead of to call the general for fire cover while they go to the city. If all prayer is for you is to buzz the intercom for a few more comforts or you got a little ache in your tummy and you want the, the butler to bring in aspirin, the heavenly butler, it will malfunction. It will malfunction in your life. And you'll stop doing it, except maybe a minute or two a day, because what's the point? It's just no big deal. I can get along, frankly. I got doctors and I got insurance policies and I got grocery stores and I got a car and I've got everything I need. Thank you. What is the point of prayer? It's just an unnecessary add on. And the reason it is an unnecessary add on is because we don't know that life is war and that that's what prayer is for. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. It is not a domestic intercom to ring up the butler to bring another comfort to the den where we are already more secure than we should be. So my picture of the Christian life is that when you get saved, you get recruited. God doesn't recruit Christians for ministry. He recruits unbelievers for war. If you're saved, you're a soldier or you're AWOL. And he recruits us and he gives us a walkie-talkie called prayer. And he says, now, there is a frequency to this walkie-talkie. It's got one frequency, only one. It's wired to the general. The general has the perfect oversight of the lay of the battlefield. He has a place for you to fight. It's very dangerous. The wartime walkie-talkie is to help you locate yourself in that. It's to help you have resources and strength and courage to be there. It's to call in wisdom for what words to say. It's to help you call in firepower when the danger comes. If you get wounded, it's to call in for healing so that you can keep on fighting, not get more comfortable. And if you try... To change it to an FM station? So you can call your favorite disc jockey and say, play your favorite tune while you go over and cross your legs under a palm tree? It won't work. So my first point is that if you want to mobilize your life for prayer, you got to know that life is war. So if you're not praying right now, I wouldn't say go home and try to pray. I would not. I didn't say that. That's not what you need to do. 
You need to go home and get on your knees and open your Bible and discover what the Christian life is about. It's about a dangerous, life-threatening engagement in overcoming evil in the world. Augustus full of evil. Minneapolis is full of evil. It's in people's hearts. It's in people's marriages. It's in kids' minds. It's in racism. It's in unjust structures. It's in business practices that are subtle and selfish and profit-driven only with no sense of integrity. Evil is rife in the world. And it's especially in the devil and the hearts of unbelief and all the bondage that he's holding people in in this city and throughout the South. It's in cultural Christianity, in churches that are do-nothing churches, just comfortable, go and feel good and dress nice and say nice things and everybody feels good. That's that's evil. It's penetrating life. Southern life, northern life, American life. And to be called to Christ is to be called to something so radically different that it is dangerous. It's dangerous socially. It's dangerous personally. It's dangerous physically. It's dangerous emotionally. It's trying. It's hard. And God is adequate. I'll be with you. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go make disciples. Even if it costs you your life, go make disciples. I'll be with you to the close of the age. When you know that life is war, you'll know what prayer is for. There will be an urgency in prayer, a vigilance in prayer, a watching in prayer, a perseverance in prayer. And we will abandon ourselves to prayer. That's the first thing we need to talk about before we talk about prayer. Life is war. Here's the second one. God is sovereign. He's going to win the war. He's going to win the war. Now, why is it that embracing God's sovereignty is so important? Well, I've mentioned one. I think if you don't have confidence that the war is going to be won by the sovereign God of the universe, you won't feel the ongoing commitment to lay hold of him to enable you to be a part of the triumph in prayer. But here's the second reason. You won't really feel as though you have any right to ask him to save anybody if he doesn't have the right to save anybody. And he won't have the right to save anybody unless he has the right to be sovereign over their lives. And he is sovereign over their lives, and he does have a right to save them. So I want to talk about that. Until we embrace that God is sovereign, we can't pray consistently that he would actually save lost sinners. Like Paul does in Romans 10.1. Paul says, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. So what's he praying? 
What's he? When you pray, you're talking to God. And when you pray, you're asking God to do things. What's he asking them to do? Answer, save them. Do you ask God to save people? Or do you believe he has the right to save people? It's a big question. It's very hard to pray consistently that God would save people if you don't believe he has the right and authority to save people. Well, I I believe he does have that right. But many people don't. They don't believe that God has the right and the authority to save people. To actually move into their lives, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, incline wicked hearts toward Jesus so that they close with Christ and receive him. That God doesn't have the right to do that. And so you can't ask him to do it. I pray for my son that God will save him. Not play with him. Not toy with him. Save him. Save him. Do whatever you have to do. Save him. That's the way I pray for my son. What do you do with uh, with the new covenant texts like Ezekiel eleven nineteen? In the new covenant, God will take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. I turn those into prayers. That's what God says He's going to do. I ask Him to do it. I say, take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. Would you do that, Father? Do it for people in this room right now who walked in here with hearts of stone. Towards you, would you take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, like you promised in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, you were going to do in the new covenant, or Deuteronomy thirty six, the Lord will circumcise their hearts so that they love Him. I say, Lord, circumcise His heart so that He loves you. That's the way I pray. Do what you promised you were going to do. Circumcise his heart so that he'll love you. Or Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven. Father, put your spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes. Or Second Timothy two twenty five. Lord, grant them repentance that they may come to a knowledge of the truth. Or Acts sixteen fourteen. Lord, open their eyes so that they give heed to the gospel, just like you did for Lydia. I just turn all these texts. Of God's wonderful new covenant promises and grace into prayers. You know, there are, are folks who um, believe that you just can't pray like that. Because God doesn't have the final say in who becomes a Christian. We have the final say. I have ultimate self-determination, not God. I decide who's in heaven, not God. Human beings govern who's in the bride of Christ. Human being governs the population of heaven. 
Human being decides who will be among the family of God. God doesn't decide any of that. Only human beings decide that. There's a whole theology out there that teaches that. Very hard to pray if you believe that. How do they pray? Here are a couple of examples. I take these out of a book from that side of the church. They pray things like, quote, ask God to cause a specific person to begin questioning whom they can really trust in life. That's perfectly legitimate prayer. But my question is, why is it right for God to cause a person to think a question they would not have thought had he not influenced them to think it, and wrong for God to cause them to think an answer that they wouldn't have thought if he not had taught them to think it? Here's another, here's another prayer that they pray who don't believe that God has the right to decisively save anybody. Quote, pray that God will plant in the hearts of these people an inner unrest together with a longing to know the truth. Unquote. Here's my question. How strong of a longing do you pray for him to plant? Do you ask God to plant a longing in your wayward child that's strong enough to lead him to Christ? Or a weak longing that would only get him maybe a a fourth of the way there? Or three-fourths of the way there? What kind of a longing do you ask God to put in your child? A decisive, sin-overpowering longing? Or just a little longing that doesn't jeopardize his own self-determination. You cannot pray consistently that God would save people if you don't believe he has the right to save people. And there are so many people who are taught that God doesn't have the right to save anybody and therefore lame the prayers of God's people so that they don't take hold of God and say, save my family. Save the Muslims. Save the Hindus. Save the Manica people in Guinea, oh God. Triumph over the devil. Shatter the bondage of their wills, oh God, to their own flesh and corruption and blindness and deafness. Shatter, break in, do whatever you have to do. Almighty God, break in and save the Manica people. They can't pray like that. They have to pray about nudges and suggestions and and even then I'm a little bit self-conscious about that because should the nudges be strong or should they be weak? Should they be compelling ideas that God plants in their minds or non-compelling ideas that he plants in their minds? Prayer founders on a failure to love the sovereignty of God. If you pray for divine influence in a sinner's life, you're either going to pray for a successful influence or not. 
If you pray for a successful influence from God in their lives, you've taken away their ultimate self-determination. If you don't pray for a successful influence, you're not praying for their salvation. Paul leaves no doubt where he stands on this issue in Romans 9.16. Therefore, it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. The only hope for hardened, I remember at Urbana 67 where God set me on fire for missions. John Alexander was there. He was the president of InterVarsity in those days. And he had come back from years of service in Pakistan where it was very hard. And uh, some student asked him about this theology of God's sovereignty. And he said, 20 years ago, I don't think I would have become a missionary if I had believed that God was sovereign and had the decisive, final, ultimate right and authority to save sinners. And men didn't call that final, ultimate shot themselves. But today, having labored for all these years in a place where I have seen the bondage and the impossibility of saving men, I would not become a missionary unless I did believe in the sovereignty of God and his right to triumph over all obstacles and save sinners. Because if you work in a hard place, say in a Muslim place where there's not been a convert for seven years and you're pouring out your life and you're sharing the gospel and you're risking your children's health, you've got to believe God has the right to do miracles here to open people to himself and draw them effectually to himself and save them so that you pray these prayers. God, take out of their flesh the hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. Circumcise their heart that they may love you. Put your spirit within them. Cause them to walk in your statutes. Grant them repentance that they may come to a knowledge of the truth. Open their eyes that they may see and believe the gospel. And so the first point under God is sovereign is that In order for prayer to flourish in missions and for missions and for evangelism, the way it ought to flourish, we need to believe that God is sovereign and has the right and authority to save sinners. And the second point under this is that we need to realize that God's going to win and it's the triumph that he is assured of that has driven the modern missionary movement from the earliest days in the life of William Carey and others. Um, The modern missionary movement was born in the late 1700s among people who shared this tremendous confidence that God is sovereign over the world. Sovereign over Nigeria. Sovereign over India. Sovereign over America. Sovereign over Saudi Arabia, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Algeria, Morocco, Chad, sovereign over North Korea and Cuba and South Vietnam or Vietnam, sovereign over the places that seem so hard, so close, sovereign over China. 
And we'll triumph there. And because they read texts like these from Psalm 86, there is none like thee among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any like any works like thine. All the nations thou hast made shall come and bow down before thee and shall glorify thy name for dominion belongs to the Lord. Or Genesis 12, 3, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Or Psalm 2, 8, I shall give thee, my son, the nations for thine inheritance. Or Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before thee. Or Matthew 24, 14, This gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. That's the most authoritative word Jesus ever spoke. This gospel of the kingdom will spread under the sovereign hand of my father. It will become an intelligible, culturally relevant testimony to all the peoples. And they have not all been reached yet. And then... The end will come. In other words, my purpose will triumph. All authority is mine. I'll get it done. I'll involve you in it. If you don't participate, I leave you. I go to another. You don't decide whether this mission gets finished. I decide. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Join me. You participate in victory. Leave me. You lose. I will win. I'm God. Now, that drove the modern missionary movement, that kind of tremendous sense of God's right and authority over nations and peoples. There was a man named John Elliott. He crossed the Atlantic, came to America in 1631. He was 27 years old. And he became a pastor in Roxbury, Massachusetts, about a mile from Boston in those days. It's in Boston today. Cotton Mather, who's writing in those days, wrote that in that area there were 20 tribes of Indians, peoples, peoples. Indians are not a people. They are peoples. They're Cherokee and Ojibwe and lots of different tribes. There were 20 Peoples, unreached, untouched, absolutely never touched before within walking distance of Boston in 1631 while these Puritans were holed up in the city. And good old John Elliot burned in his soul as a pastor with this kind of confidence and little by little as became more and more aware of what surrounded him out there in the woods. His theology of the sovereignty of God and the triumph of God gripped him. And he thought, if it's true, if what I believe is true, that God is sovereign, then he means for all the peoples of the world to be touched. Thou wast slain and by thy blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and has made them a, a kingdom and priest. To our God and they shall reign on earth. If that's true, Revelation 5, 9, then if somebody were to dare to learn the Algonquin language, one of them, the Algonquin language, and go and preach among them, though he may lose his life, the gospel's going to triumph there. Somebody's going to get saved. A church will be planted 
And he took it on himself. And you know how old he was when he decided to do that? Forty. Forty. Now, not a lot of people live beyond 40 in those days. That's old in 1631. So he's 40. He's beyond middle age. So all you people beyond middle age, it's for you. You're called finishers today. There's a whole movement among you. Praise God for it. I'm one of you. They're called finishers. They're people who've made their bucks. And it doesn't satisfy. The house doesn't satisfy. The boats don't satisfy. The golf course doesn't satisfy. The policies don't satisfy. The portfolio doesn't satisfy. You got 20, 30 good, healthy years left. Give it. Give it. You don't have to keep doing what you've always done. Dream a radical new dream. So at 40, he decides he's going to learn this language. Some of the words in the Algonquin language were as long as our alphabet. And he learned it. And he poured out his life for 44 more years. Planted churches, a little Bible college. There were Indian churches with Indian pastors who had been prepared in Indian little Bible institutes that he had done starting at 40. Because he believed, this is his famous sentence, prayers and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will do anything. Now say it again. I love that sentence. Prayers and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will do anything. So my point is, a second thing that will drive confident, engaged prayer for missions is the confidence that he's going to win. He's going to triumph among the peoples. You can pray daring prayers for yourself and your families. There's just so much, so much fear in American church. So much sold out slavery to security. (laughs) When we interview staff, our church is in the city, downtown Minneapolis. The poorest neighborhood in the city is across the highway where I live and a lot of the staff live. And when staff interviewed our church, they look around this neighborhood and uh, and they wonder, uh, you expect people to live near the church? I say, well, all of us do. Yes. And then come the questions. Is it safe? How about the kids? Blah, blah, blah. And I take a read pretty quick whether they belong among us. If that's your number one concern, see you later. You're not our kind of person. And that's the way most people are. 
Will it be safe for my kids in Guinea? Or will they get malaria and die? Well, yeah, they might. If that's the way you think, you just haven't got it yet. You know, the Apostle Paul would find the concept of closed countries unintelligible. If, if he say, well, explain to me, I've never heard that term before. Well, what's a closed country? Well, it's a country where if you try to preach the gospel, you might be put in jail. So how's that closed? I don't understand. And I know I speak beyond myself here. Speaking to myself here. I'm trying to be what I'm asking you to be. So we need to talk about life is war. And God is sovereign. And I close with the third point. If you start to understand that life is war and the stakes are high. And that God is sovereign and he has a right to save and he's going to win this war. Then what's the place of prayer now? The awesome place of prayer. Well, it is amazing that God has made the advancement of his purposes and the triumph of his warfare contingent upon the word of God spreading. Nobody believes unless a preacher is sent, he said in Romans 10. How shall they believe in whom they haven't heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? Answer is they won't. And so the gospel and the warfare will be lost without the preaching of the gospel. We are an essential piece in God's way of getting it done. He's not going to create any other gospel out there through dreams or any other means by which people can be saved. It will come through the mouth of Christians coming from places where the church has been planted to the places where the church hasn't been planted. That's his program. It won't spread and happen any other way. There have to be people who go and make and disciple people. So the gospel is dependent or the warfare is dependent upon the spread of the gospel. And here's the amazing part. He has guaranteed that that's going to happen. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and return not thither, but water the earth, and cause it to spring up and bring forth seed, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish my purpose and prosper in that for which I sent it. His purpose is going to triumph because his word, which he sends through people, is going to grip people and create a church. That's going to happen. This gospel will be preached. Now, here's the amazing role of prayer. 
He has made that assured success of the gospel contingent upon prayer. Listen to this. Ephesians 6.19 Pray for me that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He wouldn't have asked for that kind of prayer as the apostle if prayer weren't important for it to happen. Colossians 4.3 Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified. The word running and triumphing is contingent upon prayers of God's people for the word bearers. Which means that the ultimate triumph of God in the world will be guaranteed by God's guarantee of our prayers. God will see to it that people pray. He has made the triumph of his cause dependent on the preaching of the gospel. He has made the triumph of the preaching of the gospel dependent on prayers. And therefore, since all of that is sure, he must make sure that the prayers happen and they will. The only question for you tonight is, are you going to be among the number who are not left behind in utter American insignificance and security? Comfortable, happy, and meaningless. Golfing your way into the presence of the judge. You know, one of the most striking prayers or texts on prayer, and I'll close, is Matthew 9.38. Pray the Lord of the harvest. To send out laborers into his harvest. My wife and I took that in hand about 17 years ago. We looked at each other and said, what can we do? What can we do with this church? To make it a seedbed of missions. Of firepower for missions in the world. And we said, well, let's do what Jesus said. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest. So we began to pray. When you start to do that, the Lord starts to work in your own heart and give you ideas. And, and so we we felt led to create a thing called Missions in the Manse. Manse is a fancy old word for my house. And uh, Missions in the Manse means twice a year on a Friday night, I wave a little banner on Sunday morning and say, everybody who's given to missions and wants to dream about missions in your life, come to my house. I'll take all the furniture out of the living room and the dining room, and you'll sit on the floor, and we'll be there for three hours to dream together and pray together and sing together and challenge each other. We did that for the first time in March 1984, and uh, 60 people showed up. 
And uh, we've done it 36 times since then, on and off through those years. And what a difference it has made. My dining room table miraculously still holds together. I unscrew all the legs off of it, take it all apart, roll it into the den, take all the furniture up to the bedrooms, clear everything out, and 140 people now pack our living room and dining room. I had to call up the fire marshal one time said, this house was built in 1919 or something. Would it fall in to the basement if this many people are on here? And they said, why shouldn't? Probably shouldn't. That's not very reassuring. But you take risks, right? Close with this text. Um, Luke 18, 7 to 8. Will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. That's a puzzling text. But here's the challenge it holds out to us. Do you join this text in crying out, Oh God! Oh, God, how long till you vindicate your martyrs and vindicate your suffering saints and vindicate those who are the nobodies who are going around in caves, people of whom the world is not worthy. How long until you vindicate all those who have laid down their lives for the centuries and show in this world of indifference that you indeed are God and triumphant? How long, O Lord, do you remain hidden behind the skies? When will you split it open and come back and show that you are real and establish your kingdom and make your son visibly triumphant and not just quietly triumphant? You know what the answer to this text might be in our lives when you cry to me day and night. How you doing? Will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? That's the way you pray in wartime, not in peacetime. In peacetime, you go to bed at 10, and you go to work, and you watch TV in the evening. In wartime, you wake up and you pray. Because you just had a dream about your son. You stop during the day. You think about the bombs dropping. You think about the devil. You think about the power of unbelief that's holding my 21-year-old in bondage right now. And you come to terms with the absolute incredible power of sin and the supernatural force of darkness in the world that will send him to hell if he doesn't turn. And then you pray day and night. Day and night. And if your heart is big enough to grasp somebody besides your own kids, 
like all the kids in your church or all the kids in a city or all the kids in Bombay or all the little prostitute girls in Bangkok. If your heart gets big enough, you just might pray around the clock. I'm going to sing a song in a minute about the, the triumph of God. And let it let it call you. Let it call you to be a person who believes that life is war, that God is sovereign, that prayer is central, and that the victory is assured. Let's pray. Lord, as we close now, I just plead for myself. As I prepared this message earlier today, I just felt so convicted. I'm not where I want to be as a praying pastor. And so I ask you, give me a passion to pray. Help me to see life as war. Help me to see through the comforts and the ease and securities of American life to the devastation, both temporal and eternal in people's lives, not to mention other peoples of the world. And so, Lord, help me to cry to you day and night. And I ask that here in this room, that you would call out massive prayer from these folks. In Jesus' name, amen.